we consider together Luke 3, verses 15 through 22. But our focus will be 21-22, so it's continuation from our series on Luke before we take a break for a month. And uh, by the way, 23 to 38, that focuses on a genealogy, so I, want, I need a little time for that one anyway. So uh, Luke chapter 3. You know what we're going to do is, first of all, re read Luke 1, 1 through 4, because it tells us who Paul or who Luke wrote this to. He wrote this to Theophilus. Because there's all kinds of stories going around about Jesus in those days. Like today, uh, people tell all kinds of rumors, false things. And Luke is going to set the record straight. He says, let me tell you, Theophilus, this is, this is it. Uh, this is the, an eyewitness of the uh, eyewitness account of who Christ is. So if you look at Luke 1, 1 through 4, we'll just read those first few verses before we go to Luke 3. We hear God's word. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So, by the way, Luke wrote not only Luke, but also the book of Acts, because he continues to write to Theophilus um, in the book of Acts. And then, Luke 3, we'll begin reading at verse 15, but our focus is 21 and 22. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean up his threshing floor Gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. In our text, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and the voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So John would have us, John, John is saying, Hey, you want to meet Jesus? Come meet him. Meet the Messiah. Of course, today we meet him in the Word, or he comes to us through the Word. And by his spirit, come, meet him. And uh, back in John's day, you know, we see that he was baptized for us. He's strengthened in his task for us because it was a big task that he had to carry. No task was heavier than his. And then we're going to see how the Father approves of it. And he wants the whole world to know this, regardless of the religions out there. <laughs> The Father wants us, the whole world, to know that he's the way. The Father approves him only. So that's what we want to focus on today as we focus on verses 21 and 22. 
Yeah, you know, you, you look and you listen to people today, and even we're at risk ourselves sometimes just to misunderstand who Jesus really is. People say all sorts of things about Jesus, and people will also misrepresent him in our world. So, but really, how is he different from all the other gods? Sometimes you hear things like, well, he's no different than Krishna. He just has different clothes on. Who is Jesus? And Luke is going to give a straight account of who he is so that we may know once and for all and that the world may come to know who he really is. Unlike Matthew, remember Matthew, who did he write for? He wrote for the Jews. He wrote his gospel for the Jews mainly, those who were um, um, the covenant people of God. But Luke, who does he write to? He writes to Gentiles, right? Greek-speaking Gentiles. That's who he writes to. And they were in a world where there were lots of gods, like the community around us. Lots and lots of temples, lots and lots of gods. Um, that's the world in which the Gentiles were in. And you notice he writes to a Gentile, probably a new believer. Maybe he was an inquirer, some say, but it seems to me that he's already a believer, right? Almost excellent Theophilus, right? Who was Theophilus? Theophilus literally means lover of God. Okay, and Theophilus was a high-ranking officer, very, very special place, very special position in the Roman army. Okay, uh, most excellent Theophilus. That's the same kind of term that Paul um, uses in terms of uh, when he speaks to Felix in Acts, most excellent F Felix or most excellent Festus. So he's a, you could say, man of high position in, in, the, in the Roman government. And why does Luke write? He writes to strengthen the faith of Theophilus. It seems certain that Theophilus was attacked from every direction, especially in some of the higher government circles, right? All kinds of stories swirling about, swirling around about who this Jesus is, an insurrectionist, and all kinds of rumors and counter-rumors regarding Jesus. And we know that Christians as we know from Acts 28, 22, were being spoken of against everywhere. It's really no different today, right? And uh, Luke here wants to set the record straight as we see in verses 1, 1 through 4 of chapter 1, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We have to be really clear. It's not just Luke writing this. He wrote this. God uses his personality. But it's God making sure that every word that Luke wrote comes from his mouth. It's God-breathed. It's a God-breathed word. That's what we mean by inspiration here. Okay, it's reliable. Never need to doubt a word that's in here. It's trustworthy. God is faithful, right? All the time. So we never need to question one single word in here as it centers on Christ. Luke's purpose is to reach all the nations not for some general God, no, but for the triune God centering on Jesus himself, right? Revealed in Christ himself. You know, it's a baptism. You see the work of the triune God already there. Luke is passionate that the God that we bring to the nations is the triune God 
revealed in Christ himself in the body, right? In the flesh. And so, yeah, John the Baptist, you know, God sent him ahead of time. He says, you prepare. You prepare the people for the coming of Jesus, for the way of Christ. And John, in some ways, was popular. But some of the ways, he was not very popular because he was very bold in his preaching. He was very strong. He wasn't afraid to call sin a sin. And it just was like put salt in the wounds, so to speak. But at the same time, salt in the wounds does heal, doesn't it? But it's very painful at the time. And he was calling people to turn away from those sins, to repent of them. And he was warning them of the judgment to come. John really loved the people, so much so that he brought the warning out. Thousands came to John confessing their sins, warning baptism. And what does baptism do? In baptism, God used, or John was using water. and It was a water that signifies the washing away of what? Sins, the removal of sins. Baptism itself doesn't do that. Christ does that. But the baptism is a sign, right? It's a seal that Christ really does walk, wash away our sins when we believe on him. They came to see the need for Jesus, the Messiah. So John points him to the one who is so much greater than he. He said, the one that's coming, I'm not even worthy to bend down and to take the strap off his sandal, right? It's one of the, the grossest things that people could do in those days was to, to touch the feet, the dirty feet of another person and to remove the shoe. John says, this, this one is so great. I can't even bend down that low and I'm not even worthy of doing that. Let someone else do that because I'm not worthy of doing that. And so today, John would have us meet the Messiah Want to know him? You want to meet him? Jesus, the Savior. Jesus means Savior. The Messiah, the Anointed One, the one that is called to accomplish the task for us, to save us. We see, first of all, he was baptized for us. Look at verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. Oh, really? What kind of inauguration is this? When a prime minister is inaugurated into office, when he begins his service, boy, there's big parties, a lot of fanfare, red carpets and, and, and beautiful lights, colored lights. Well, Jesus also was baptized. This is not really the important event that we expected. Really? You want to follow him? Uh, where, where's the glory? Where, where's the grandeur? Uh, where's the popularity? Really? He's just like one of them. He just seems like an ordinary man. It seems like it. A Jew coming to get baptized just like everybody else. Mixing in with the crowd. You hardly notice him. Jesus also was baptized. No trumpet sound, no public notice. Come on this day because on this day, Jesus is going to be baptized. Come with all your friends and with all your people. No, no fanfare at his inauguration. 
Really? No wonder people speak speak uh, in bad ways about him. Look at, he's just that simple, ordinary man. He's just one among the thousands who has come to John to, to receive baptized. They were all baptized. He also was baptized. How anticlimactic. You ever ask yourself, why in the world was Jesus baptized? Does that seem to cause a bit of attention in you? Because who needs baptism? <laughs> People who need their sins washed away. Right? When we're, when we're uh, convicted of our need for Christ, and he convicts us of our sin, then he gives us that sign and seal and saying, yeah, the baptism is a sign and seal of the fact that Christ alone washes away our sins, right? Believing adults and their children. But Jesus didn't have any sin, did he? Or did he have sin? Well, the Bible says that he himself was without sin. Hebrews 4.15, check it out. He himself was without sin. John 8, Jesus says to the Jews, who convicts me of sin? Jesus had no guilt. Jesus also was baptized. Why? Well, in his baptism, what does Jesus do? He's baptized. Why? He takes upon himself the sin of all his people. Not his own sin. He had no sin. He takes upon himself our sin. He takes upon himself our guilt. He says, I'm going to go down into the Jordan. And I myself will take upon myself the wrath and the judgment of God that we deserve. That was to come upon us. Not just the sins of one person. You know, you imagine your own burdens, your own sin, your own misery. That's heavy. That's heavy enough. But now imagine Jesus carrying not just one person, but the sins of how many? Carrying on his back. Look, can you imagine carrying 250 pounds on your back? It's crushing. It's weighty. That's what Jesus comes to do. We can't save ourselves from our sins. So another comes. He does. He carries our burdens. He carries our sorrows, our miseries, and guilt all alone, all by himself. At Jesus, at, at his baptism, what does Jesus begin to fulfill? He begins, he begins to fulfill those words that Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So why was Jesus baptized? For his own sin? No. For he was baptized carrying our sins upon himself. That was his inauguration. You talk about a man for the people. Talk about a man. I mean, kings, they'll talk about being the man for the people, but they like their high, posh positions. Not this one. He comes. We can meet him. We meet him, the one who came to be baptized for us. 
This hardly looks like greatness. Does, it look, does this look like greatness to you? The one looks, this one looks more like a servant than, as John says, one mightier than I. It looks like a servant, a menial servant, a slave, a servant of servants. You know, at first, John didn't understand. because if, if you read Matthew chapter 3, John's almost offended there. Lord, I need to be baptized by you, and you, now you're asking me to baptize you? You're coming to me for baptism? This hardly looks like the coming of one about whom John says, I am not worthy to bend down and even loosen the straps of a sandal. Jesus' inauguration. Have you been into an inauguration like that? Where someone was just, just among the people. That's Jesus. Right? His first public act of ministry, his official beginning, his being set apart by God, appointed by God, anointed now for his task that's set before him. You know, fathers have a task. Police officers have a task. Elders have a task, right? They're set apart for those tasks. Here Christ is set apart to be the sin bearer of the world. Where is his greatness? He just seems like a, more like a menial servant who comes to do all the dirty work for us. You like people doing dirty work for you? That's what Jesus does. He comes to do all the dirty work, taking all our filth. He says, let me take that. Give me your dirty clothes. Let me, let me take it all. That's what he does when he goes into the water. Right? He says, I'm going to take the blame for it. I'm, you, you don't take the blame for it. I'm going to take the blame for it. You need to confess me in order to, for me to take the blame for it. I'm willing to be punished for it. No celebration, no big party. You know, Luke mentions one thing that Jesus did at his inauguration. What did Jesus do? He prayed. He prayed. No one prayed with him. He prayed all by himself. Why did he pray? Wouldn't you, if you felt the weight of the whole world, the weight of the sin and the burden and the, and the fact that you have to be punished to death. And, and he wanted to do this. This is the other thing. It wasn't just mere duty. He loved the world. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He wanted, he was willing to do this. This was his love. That's how much he loves the people. He comes to us and he says, meet me. I'm Jesus. I'm an ordinary person. Ordinary. The one so willingly to take your sins. Baptized for you. The one baptized for you is also equipped. You know, when you think about the tremendous weight that's on his back, don't you think he needs help in his human nature, that is? In his human nature, he needs to be strengthened. He needs to be helped. He needs to be equipped. What comes next in verse 22 is this seems like a total contrast. Here Jesus comes into the wilderness as a Jew, as Mark says, from Nazareth, an ordinary man coming to get baptized. And while he prays, what happens? The heavens open. Talk about glory. 
When's the last time the heavens opened when you saw a prime minister or a president being inaugurated? Here the heavens open with the witness of the true greatness of this lowly man. True greatness is in serving, but it's more than that here. The Messiah we meet here is whom? Is God's own son. Truly, fully God who comes in the flesh of a mere man. What happens first? The heavens tear open. If you look at Mark's gospel, it literally means here the heavens split open like a garment that split it seems. You ever have it where you, you know, you're, you're maybe shirt's getting a little tight on you, you gain a little bit of weight, then it starts splitting at the seams? Well, the heavens split at the seams. A ruptured. And here you see God answering Isaiah's prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. That you would come down. This was Isaiah's prayer 700 years before. Oh, that you would break open the heavens. Lord, that you would come down and come to us. It's here. Of this ordinary man, approachable. He's so normal. He's not intimidating. But this is who he is. This is a witness that in this man, God has come to do a mighty work for us in him. What kind of work? Well, a kind of work that he can't, he needs, he needs to be strengthened. He needs to be encouraged. He needs to be in his human nature, right? He has a human nature like us, except without sin, who needs to now finish the task that's before him. And it's going to be hard. He's going to have to strive. Hebrews 5 talks about how he learned obedience through all of it. And we learn this in the next thing that happens. The heavens are open. What happens? The Holy Spirit comes down through that opening of the heavens in the form of a dove. And where does the Holy Spirit, where does the dove rest? Right on Jesus himself. He comes down on the Messiah to do what? To strengthen him. He's the one who anoints him for this task. He's the one who sets him apart. One that was appointed by the Father. Okay, go to it, Jesus. Go to it. I'm with you. You're equipped. You're strengthened for the task that's before you. You're there. I'm going to strengthen you to carry the sins of the world on your back, but also to nail it, to kill it, to kill it on the cross. Jesus became sin for us, right, on the cross. He comes, the Holy Spirit, you notice here, comes like what? Like a, a bird, a dove. Verse 22 says, in bodily form, like a dove. So I had a physical shape. It was literally seen like a dove, visible. What does that make you think of? There's other times in Scripture where the word dove is used. Sure, we may think of gentleness, purity, but I think we can also think of the dove that Noah sent out, out of the ark after the flood. Remember, after the rains, the waters were receding. Noah sent out the dove. Yes, and it was just flying around, but it marks the beginning of something new, doesn't it? It marks the beginning of a New creation. The old is wiped away. And 
There's something new. There's a new beginning, a, a new creation. You think of another example? Think in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 2. Who's hovering over the waters before God creates the world? The Spirit, hovering. It's an image of a dove. Hovering over the waters as God is beginning something new. Right? He's beginning. It's a work of creation that he's ready to do. And now here at Jesus' baptism, a dove descends and remains on him. That's what John tells us in, in uh, John 1, 32 and 33. It remains on him. The, the, the Holy Spirit didn't leave him again. It remains on him to equip him. This is God's witness to us. The Messiah has come gently like a dove to make a new beginning for those who have messy lives. Right? To those... In the, I mean, you could say a new beginning in this world for sinners who have lost their way. He's come about to bring a new beginning, a new creation. Think back to Genesis 1, right? The old Adam, the new Adam, right? A new creation to make a new start, to forgive, because after all, he's going to nail it to the cross, and to restore fellowship. After all, in him the heavens are open. Forgiveness, restoration of fellowship. It's all in this one ordinary man. What an inauguration. Oh, the world didn't see that. There was no party. Boy, was heaven celebrating. Angels must have been rejoicing. The words of Isaiah 42 come to mind. Behold, says God, my servant, who's a servant? Jesus, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit on him. This is written 700 years before. I put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Sometimes you might feel like a bruised reed is ready to break. Or maybe you feel like the fire has almost gone out, snuffed out. But Jesus will not break it. He will not quench it. He will not break the bruised reed. He will not extinguish the fire that's almost ready to be snuffed out. He would say to those who want to commit suicide, no, no, no. You know, you come to me. Meet the Messiah. Meet Jesus, the Messiah. There's a new beginning. There's a new hope. He's there to save the humble. Right? Of course, we need to confess. We need to ask the Lord to make us humble. He's there to, to save those who are weak in themselves, to save those who have lost all hope. And he's ready to put... And, and, and to, say, to say those who have lost all hope and who are at the same time ready to put their hope in this Messiah. Come. He comes to us. Meet him. Meet him in Scripture. He comes to us through the Scripture. You know, he's the one who comes to serve. That's his greatness. Right? The Son of God. At the same time, fully man. He comes to serve. He comes to clean us up. 
He comes to raise up the lowly. He comes to bring light to the darkness. He comes to bring life to the dead. This is Jesus. This is what he was anointed to do. And, you know, he, he, himself, is, he himself must experience that darkness, the darkness and the anguish of hell itself in our place. That's why he needs to be strengthened so that he can give you all those things that he promises in his word. But he himself will suffer like no one else has ever suffered. That's what he's anointed for, to carry that task. There's so much hope for us here. If you've made a life, if you've made your life a mess, if you've brought a lot of hurt to others, or if you brought a lot of hurt to your family, meet him, the Messiah. You don't need to make an appointment. Oh, with important officials sometimes. I can schedule in for three o'clock, five months from now. No, not Jesus. You come right away. He's always ready. He comes to your doorstep. He wants you to come to him in faith. You can begin anew with him. He is filled with a spirit of gentleness to lift you out of the deep. He can make you new so that the rest of your life is different. That song, maybe you heard of this song. Here bring your wounded hearts. Here tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot heal. Meet Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah literally means the anointed one. The one who reveals God to us. The one who gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins as priest. The one who is king, who can conquer those things in our lives. Oh yes, he will judge those who reject him, but those who surrender their hearts and lives to him find mercy, a new beginning. Baptized for you, equipped for you, strengthened for you in his task, and above all, approved by the Father. You know, we talk about what does God approve? Of course, everything he says in his word. But you talk about one in whom you can find salvation? That's Jesus, because the Father, God himself, approves of it. He puts a stamp on it. Approved by the Father to save us. Verse 22, while he prayed, the heaven was open. And what else happens? Not only does the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove, a voice came from heaven. And what was that voice? He speaks directly to his son, to Jesus the Messiah. You are my beloved son. That word beloved is such an affectionate term. It's like no other. You are my beloved. You talk about the love of the Father for the world. I mean, he's willing to send this one. And he says to him, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Whose voice is that from heaven? Well, if it's... If this one is his beloved son, it's got to be the father. Notice we have here the three persons of the triune God. The son, the Holy Spirit, and who's the last one? The father. Working together for our salvation. That's why we're baptized in the name of the father, son, and Holy Spirit. You notice here, the father's not saying to him, now you have become my son as of today. He's not saying that. He said, you are my son. 
He always was his son from all eternity, right? Alongside of God the Father. God says, this Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth, this one born in the manger is my son. I have sent him down to you to bring you salvation, and I approve of him. And this he says before the whole world, not just Christians, is to everyone in the whole wide world. This is the one. Meet him. Meet Jesus, the Messiah. You know, the most amazing mystery, a marvelous truth, is that Jesus, born in a manger, outside, you, know, you could say cast out of Bethlehem, really, is also the Son of God. Both a Jew from Nazareth, as Mark says, and at the same time, from heaven. Baptized by John like one of us, at the same time, this one who's baptized by John, he's the one who dies, who accomplishes all that the Father gave him to do. He rises from the dead, and this is the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. That's what John said a little earlier, verse 12 and 13. It's this Messiah we meet in the pages of Luke's gospel. You know, he gets really tired because he's truly human. He falls asleep in the boat, and at the same time, he controls the wind and the waves. Fully man, fully God. He lays down his life voluntarily, willingly. At the same time, he takes it up again. Meet the Messiah, proved by God. This is the one whom God wants the world to meet. That means we need to spread the, spread the message. Today, there are so many religions that claim to be the way to God. But the Messiah is the only one approved by God himself. There is no salvation in any other name than in him. Heaven is open. Fellowship, right? The heavens are open. It's been sealed shut because of sin. But in him, it's open. There's fellowship for those who believe on him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Remember what John said? John 1, verse 33. I have seen and I have testified that this indeed is the Son of God. The man born in a manger, the Son of God from heaven. There's such rich comfort in this passage for us to draw from. Not only comfort for the Son, the Son needed that comfort, not only comfort for John, but for all of us who trust on Jesus. First thing here, the Son loves you enough to suffer the agonies of hell that we deserve. He loves you that much. Second, the Holy Spirit is willing to cooperate in the work, of, in the work for your salvation in order to strengthen him for this weighty, weighty responsibility. It crushed him. It crushed him. And third, the father doesn't frown on his son. You know, he's his only son, his only beloved son. He doesn't frown on him. He's pleased. He's so pleased because of what he's going to do for us that the heavens split open and he speaks so that his approval may be heard everywhere 
on the earth. What a way to evangelize. You know, the Father approved of this, you know. These three, the one true living God, working together for our salvation. You know, we today don't live in John's day. We live way beyond that now. Since then, since John's day, you can say the heavens were rent open a second time, and they will be rent open again a third time. Let's look at that briefly. We'll close. They were open, or they were rent open a second time. When? Pentecost. Remember Pentecost? A sound as a mighty rushing voice or a, a rushing mighty sound came down from heaven. You know, Christ having accomplished all his work the Father gave him to do, right? The one who gloriously arose from the dead, who did what the Father sent him out to do, who conquered sin, death, and hell after ascending into heaven at the right hand of God. What does he do? He baptizes his church with the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on the church. The spirit now descended, this time not on Jesus, but on whom? On the church, on his body. That's his new creation. Then what, what, why, did Christ, why was Christ baptized for us? A new beginning, a new creation. And now the church is his new community on earth. A new creation. Okay, a spirit-anointed community. Anointed to do what? To confess Jesus. What else? To offer ourselves as living sacrifices of thanks and to strive against the sin of the devil. Boy, we need the Holy Spirit, don't we? To strive against all those things, right? We, we have an important task, right, to reflect Christ, but we need his spirit to help us. You are the people that belong to the Messiah. Christian comes from the word Christ, or the Messiah's people, right? Messiah and Christ are the same. One is Hebrew, Messiah. The other is Greek, Christ. You wear his name in your baptism. Christ is raising up those dead in sin by his word and by his spirit. What? Gathering the nations in. That was Luke's purpose. That the nations would hear about the triune God revealed in Christ. And you see it happening today. Christians from Iran coming by the thousands to Christ. And different parts and different countries all throughout history. You hear the work of the spirit drawing people to Christ. And you know what? Even in the midst of that, yes, there will be all kinds of stories, bad stories about Jesus, rumors regarding him. But by his life-giving spirit, he leads us against the foe. He leads us into battle because in him, every foe is vanquished. He has won the battle. And we look forward to that final rending of the heavens. It was opened up again at Pentecost, and it will come one more time. The heavens will be rent open again. When? When Jesus returns on the clouds of glory. The heavens will be rent open one more time when Jesus returns in the clouds of glory. It's true. It will really happen. Every eye will see it. Everyone will meet the Messiah. But this time, I mean, now is the day of salvation. 
But this time when he comes back, he's not coming back as a servant, but as the glorious Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's the one who has dominion over all things. And everyone will meet him, but with either one of two destinies, either with everlasting life with him, that is all those who trust in him, everlasting life with him in heaven, or eternal punishment in hell apart from him. He comes to us. Meet him. What will you do with him? Well, we trust him. That was John's message. As one songwriter writes, and we sing, we'll sing this in a few minutes. Come, O Spirit, come as fire, breath of Christ, his foes to slay, new creation's mighty power now outpoured on desert land. That speaks of the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth to come. Can you wait for that day? The day's coming. And everything will be made new. Everything. New heaven, new earth. And then you can say Christ's work through his church will be complete. He completed his own work for us, but now he is busy at work through his church, completing his purposes on earth. And when he returns, indeed, he will return as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Indeed, Jesus the Messiah is Lord. He is King. Amen.